Thank you, Brian, for reading for us. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to turn over to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. Let me pray for us as we open up God's Word. Father, we thank You that we are able to come before You and to worship Your name, the God who saved us through the blood of Your Son, and that we would come to You by faith and would trust You, Father, that You would be the Lord and the Savior of our lives, that we would walk in obedience to You. Father, as we open up Your Word from this 47th chapter of Genesis, we pray that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts ready to apply uh, what you have for us. Father, help us to see your goodness and your your plan for us, uh, and that it is not to harm us, but that it is to cause us to flourish. Father, help us to see uh, how you desire us uh, to flourish, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we come to this text, as we continue in our series in Genesis, uh, we're going to be looking primarily at this contrast, as Brian just read for us, of flourishing in light of famine. The text that he read, starting in verse 13, says that there's no food anywhere. And yet, at the end of the reading, in verses 27 and 28, God's people flourish. And that's true of all of us. That's true of the church of Jesus Christ, that in the midst of opposition, in the midst of seemingly unsurmountable circumstances, God causes His church and His people to flourish. We're reminded that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Uh, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that that is true. And so as we open up this text, let's remind ourselves where we've just come from. Uh, We've just been in chapter 46 and the first part of chapter 47, where we see these promises that began even all the way back to Adam and Eve, that after they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God promises them one who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will set all things right again. And we see this progression through Noah, through uh, others, and ultimately through Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And as Jacob finally reunites with his son Joseph there in Egypt, we see these promises becoming more uh, visible, more large, more expansive, both as we've seen Jacob's family grows more largely, it expands more. But these promises, and I told Derek this this week, if I could have preached that sermon last week over again, it would be titled God's Enduring Promises because it transfers from Jacob or it continues, it endures from Jacob as a person to Israel, a people. And so as these promises go forward, we'll see the next chapter, we'll see uh, in the coming chapters, rather, that Jacob dies. Spoiler alert. Uh, but we were in Genesis 4, where everyone dies, okay? So uh, this, is, this is where uh, we're heading, to see these promises enduring even beyond 
Jacob's death and extend and endure to God's people. And this is good news for us, that the same promises that came to Adam and to Eve, the same promises that came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been made to us. We don't have to be left wondering, how might we live in this world? How might we position ourselves to be blessed, to flourish? We don't have to guess. We don't have to whiteboard out all of the other circumstances. We don't even have to look and see what is being blessed, what is flourishing. Because again, God's word directs us to these things. So flourishing amidst famine, that in the midst of famine, while the nations languish, God's people flourish. In the midst of famine, the nations languish, but God's people flourish. Look with me there at verse 13. We've just read it. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. We get into verses 14 and following. We have this explanation of what I had immediately termed Jacob the, or Joseph the entrepreneur. Joseph the entrepreneur. And in one sense, it could seem as though Joseph's being overly opportunistic. There's no food. There's no grain. There's no livestock. There's no people. Joseph makes good on those things. But it's not entirely a negative uh, of what Joseph is doing, because as we look into it, the people, both of Egypt and Canaan, uh, have nothing. Verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. The people of Egypt and the people of Canaan are without. They have nothing. As one commentator says, it's only a matter of time that they will have nothing left but their land and the corpses that they will soon become. That term languishing in verse 13, uh, that's an understatement. For death seems imminent, so much so that they go to Joseph and say, give us these things or else we will die before your eyes. Verse 16, and Joseph answered, give your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. Again, Joseph, the entrepreneur. All right, you don't have money, but what valuables do you have? You have livestock. Bring me your livestock in exchange for food. This is what we will barter. So, verse 17, they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year. What is this reminding us of? They came to him in year one, and when their food was ended, they came to him the next year. This is going to be a repetition. How many years is this famine to go on? Seven. That the seven years 
of great prosperity would be so far forgotten because of the severity of the famine, and here they are in seemingly year two. They have nothing. So they're going to keep finding themselves in this repetitive cycle. So verse 18, And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Remember how severe this famine is? So severe that now twice the people of Egypt have said, if we don't get food, we will die. Take whatever you need so that we won't die. As one pastor says, no pastor is good to his flock if he's dead. The same is true for these folks. They're no good dead. For why should we die before your eyes, both we in our land? Here's the solution, right? The problem is we don't have food. All right, we've sold you our livestock. Now we have food. Year two comes. We have no food. Problem again. We come to you. And now we have no food and now we have no money. Buy us, they say, and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. You may be thinking things that I was thinking as I was reading through this over the week. Here is Joseph, the one who's endured being sold into slavery, the one who sits rotting in a pit only to be able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, this one whom the scripture Moses writes in high esteem. This Joseph is providing uh, the plan of God to be able to show that He's keeping a remnant, not only of the people of God, but he's also preserving nations. He's preserving in this moment the people of Egypt. And so perhaps you're thinking what I was thinking. Joseph is going to enslave all these people? It was noted in Sunday school last week, and I encourage you, they've been hitting home runs out of the park, though they might not say that. Our teachers have. It was, it was noted in the book of Philemon that slavery, even in Rome, is much different than the slavery that we're thinking of in, in modern colonial times. Even more so removed from modern colonial times would be uh, the slavery to Egypt. And this, in this sense, is not even slavery, as Pharaoh does not enslave these people. No, they retain their liberty. They retain all of these different things. But they're more than happy to give up themselves and to give up their land so that they might live. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their land because Uh, became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. How far expansive was this? The writer says, from one end of Egypt to the other. This famine is so severe, it is so uh, taking over this region that all of Egypt becomes Pharaoh's. 
Only the lands of the priests, verse 22, uh, did not become Pharaoh's. And what was the wage that these, uh, these people were to receive in light of being given money for food? Verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Joseph is, in one sense, providing protection, providing life for the people of Egypt. And in so doing, he's not so inflicting upon them such harsh requirements. You keep 80% of what's mine. Listen to that. I'm going to give you food to plant in my fields, my seed, my fields, my workers, and you keep 80% of it. All you have to do is give a fifth back to Pharaoh. At this, they were so pleased with that agreement. Sure, because you've saved our lives. So in the midst of this famine, we see the people of Egypt and all of those in the surrounding lands are, are at a point of death. If you do not provide for us food, we will die right before your eyes. Now remember with me, when Joseph interprets these dreams of Pharaoh, just turn a couple of chapters backward. When Joseph interprets these dreams in Genesis chapter 41... Who is it that the famine is attributed to? It's not to the sun gods. It's not to the gods that provide rain. It's not to any of these things. But what does Joseph say when he retells this dream, or interprets it rather, uh, to Pharaoh? He says, time and time again, these are the things that the Lord is showing you that he is about to do. Now, you may take that a bunch of different ways and say, oh my goodness, how can God be good and cause this famine to the point where these Egyptians are about to die? That's not what this sermon is about. But the fact is that God sits sovereignly enthroned over this famine. and He was using it to form his people. He was using it to form his people that he might get them to Egypt, that he might grow them and flourish, uh, cause them to flourish there. The same God who caused this famishing and languishing of those in Egypt is also the same God who causes his people to flourish. So Joseph made this law, a statute concerning the land of Egypt. Verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Let's just mark something out real quick. This is a, a kind of what we might call a whiplash 
of these things. Verses 13 through 27, or 13 through 26, is reminding us of kind of the early days of famine. The early days of famine. And then in verse 27 and following, it kind of fast forwards through uh, because we see in verse 28 at the end that Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. So there's this progression, but it stands that the prospering, the flourishing of his people remains throughout this famine. Think about it. He provided for them through Joseph grain more than they could carry. He provided for them a home there in Goshen to settle and to work under Pharaoh's authority to be provided uh, the, the caravan of um, carts and horses and perhaps camels, all of those things to go back to Canaan and to bring them back. They have flourished this entire time, summarized up in the 70 people of Jacob's family who journey now into Egypt. That flourishing doesn't stop now. For the writer, our brother Moses, reminds us, they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We don't have much else other than that. How, how were they fruitful and how did they multiply? We can see in Exodus that God's people certainly flourished and multiplied to the point where the new king of Egypt, the new Pharaoh, put them under a different kind of slavery than what we're talking about, uh, more of a servitude in chapter 47. But they do put them under slavery because they've grown such in number that they recognize we don't have the upper hand anymore. So, let's put them in slavery. God's people do exactly what God says they will do. Down in Egypt, I will grow you. Verse 46. Down in Egypt, this is where you will be formed. This is where this will take place. And so it is. God has promised from the very beginning... Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion, to rule and reign, and to image the one in whom you're made after. That the design for all of humanity is for us to be worshiping the God who made us in such a way that everybody knows whose we are. And so in these last few verses of chapter 47, we see that God is causing them to flourish. They were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. Now we can all recognize, even with all of the tumult that's going on around the world, we are not in a time of famine. Now, that's not to neglect the millions who go malnourished and hungry and starving. And that is an atrocity. That should be fixed. And in heaven, one day that will be. And we ought to, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we ought to try as best as we can to serve those in need. We should. 
And in the midst of these things, God continues to call us to flourish. We see not only in those things, but we see throughout the Old Testament that God has put up laws for us to obey. Deuteronomy, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, Blessings for obedience. Do these things. These are really good for you. And curses for disobedience. Don't do these things. These are not the things that God has designed you to do. To image me in the world is not to do these things. To image me in the world is to be obedient to my commands. But it's not just in the law that we see God's desire for his people to flourish. No, we even have an entire book, Proverbs, of how, right? Uh, a father writing to his son of ways that you can have and seek wisdom. Right? What's the reminder? If you seek wisdom, you won't be a fool. You want to flourish? Seek wisdom and don't be a fool. And friends, you might think that there's 12 steps to not being a fool. There's one. There's one thing that God has ultimately put his pinnacle of divine wisdom and knowledge into. It's the plan that from before the foundation of the world, he set forth his son who would come for us. Don't be a fool. Trust in Jesus. Don't seek earthly wisdom. Don't seek earthly provisions. Seek Jesus. For what does he tell his disciples? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. What does that mean? Oh, man, I am finally going to get that private jet. No, it means you're not going to give a rip about that anymore. Maybe. Sorry, that's my own sinful heart. You're not going to care about that stuff anymore. And you're going to recognize that in the face of all of life's trials, God has caused you to flourish. Think about all of the ways, just in a physical sense, that God's caused you to flourish today. From 12.01 a.m. to right now, think of ways that God's caused you to flourish. Did you eat breakfast this morning? Did you have food in your refrigerator? Did you wake up? Did you get out of bed? Did you have the ability to get out of bed? Do you have breath in your lungs? Is your heart still beating? Is your mind still maybe sometimes not super active, but still active? God is causing you to flourish because he's showing his love and grace and kindness on you. But more than just the physical provisions that we see that they gained possessions in the land of Egypt and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Friends, we we ought to again remember that it's not about that stuff. For what does it profit the world that he gains all of these things and yet he loses his soul? Friends, you want to know how to flourish? It's following Jesus. That first step in following Jesus is by recognizing with the same plea of the Egyptians, we have nothing Give us something lest we die before your eyes. What an amazing reminder that we should learn from these Egyptians. We got nothing, y'all. We're reminded throughout the New Testament that we were, and if we're still in our trespasses, we're dead. 
We're dead. Not almost dead. We're dead. And what's the remedy? It's not striving. As all of the YouTube personalities would cause you to want to 10x your income. Buy rental houses and rental property or grow a large family or get that Mercedes Benz or what, whatever. That flourishing dies when you die. That flourishing is the flourishing that we see is a treasure that rust and moths destroy. But what are we told? Seek things that cannot be destroyed. Seek heavenly treasure. So we run to Jesus with the same plea of the Egyptians. Give us food lest we die. I want to be careful in how I present this, but an author and pastor by the name of John MacArthur has this compelling little book called Slave. It's on the New Testament's word, doulos, slave. Josh, you touched on it in Sunday school. How many of Paul's New Testament letters remind those who are listening that he's a slave of Christ? I believe the half-brother of Jesus, James, opens his letter in similar ways. There was a recognition among the first century disciples. This is my station. I'm not kingly. I'm not worthy. I'm not high. I'm not noble servant. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And friends, when you come to Jesus with that cry of, I recognize my state of sinful disobedience before your eyes. Give me bread. He does. He does. Whether it be in a basket of loaves and fishes that he multiplies to those in the crowd, or whether it's by his very self, he provides for us, causing us to flourish. Friends, the first way to flourish on this earth is to recognize that there's something beyond this and to honor Christ as master, run to him in repentance. And similarly, we ought to then respond to finding such a great salvation by finding such a master. How great is it that in one sense, Jesus offers us salvation for nothing in return? Think about it. His body secures our salvation. His Blood secures our salvation. His perfect work and keeping of the law secures our foundation. His uh, uh, sitting at the right hand of God secures our salvation. All of these things have nothing to do with our own work. And they have everything to do with Him. But in another sense, it costs us everything. It doesn't just cost us the 20% that Pharaoh asked for. It costs us everything. 
because he's not just this baseball cap that you decide when you leave the house which one you want to put on, which fan base do you want to make more upset over the other. No. This agreement, this salvation that comes by grace through faith is not a salvation devoid of his lordship, his kingship, his sovereign rule, not over just the cosmos, but over you. That's what he asks of us. He asks everything of us. And in his grace, he recognizes in many ways, we can't give it. Right? Friends, we recognize that every single day, as the old hymn goes, I need thee every hour, every minute, every second, every millisecond. We need the saving work and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to cause us to flourish, to image God rightly. See, His Lordship is not over 20% of our lives. It's not over the 12 point whatever. I need some math on the spot. Whatever one day of a seven day week is. But you could even fractionalize that even more. One hour of one day in a week. It's less than 0.5 of a percent. Friends, when we have been bought, when we have recognized our state before Christ, that we are in need, give us food, give us salvation, lest we die before your eyes. When we receive that salvation, he gets it all. He gets it all. It's all his, right? This provision in verse 27, that they, provide, that they gain possessions and are fruitful and multiply in the land. Who's, whose possessions are they, ultimately? Sure, they could be the Egyptians, but they're gods. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He has no need for these things in and of himself. These possessions are gods. Just like the famine came from the hand of God, so too the possessions and the multiplying and the fruitfulness came from the hand of God. And he's extended his hand once more in his son. Beloved, here's how you flourish. Walk in the way of the Son. So when we recognize our state, when we recognize the salvation that we have, we will give it to the Master. We will give it to the Master. I've heard it said that 10% of tithe is just too much. We have too much to do, too many expenses. I know how much we hate the government in here. That's why we pray for them. We're giving more than 10, 20% to the government. We may not be happy with that, but we send it. We have to. But what do the Egyptians do at this response? They're joyful. You've saved us. There's nothing too much that you could ask for. And you only ask for 20%. You granted us life. You granted us 
salvation. You've saved our lives. And they continue, may it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Friends, so often we think of God and following his commands that it's a gumball machine. Well, I went to church and I put in, I put in the, the thing and I turned the knob and it gave me, gave me a red gumball and I wanted a purple one. Or it didn't give me any gumball at all. I didn't get anything good from going to church. I hope those thoughts never cross our mind. We have a master who has saved us and there will be nothing that we will withhold from him because we recognize that he is good and that it is he who owns all things. It is he who has caused us to prosper. Not only will we give our things, our time, our talents, our treasure, but we'll also serve the master. We'll serve him. What does that look like? I think it would be so easy for us to say we serve the master through service to this local church. And sure, absolutely, that should be one of your biggest priorities to serve the Church of Jesus Christ at First Baptist Church Eastwood. But it's not just relegated to, again, this less than 0.5 of a percent. Service to the Master is lifelong, day-long, year-long servitude, discipleship. We will serve the Master gladly because He saved us. What a great Savior and what a great salvation that we would give and serve because we've been made alive. And lastly, their response reminds us that we won't just give and we won't just serve, but we'll worship the Master. There's an affection in you've saved our lives. I don't think ever in the history of history, you would ever see a statement read off, you've saved our lives. In the emergency room, when a hospital staff saves a person on the brink of death, that person, whenever they are healed up enough, they can't stop talking about it. They can't stop showing their appreciation for the way in which their lives have been saved. They're not just Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Friends, when we recognize the Savior and recognize the great salvation that causes us to flourish, we'll worship Him with everything that we have. From a heart that recognizes you have clutched us, you've captured us out of the clutches of darkness and despair. And you've transferred us into light and life. From death and darkness and despair to life. Friends, what is that more than a testimony? We all have a testimony if we've trusted in Christ. From death to life. May we give our all to the Master. May we serve Him. May we 
worship Him. May we learn His ways, recognizing that all of the flourishing and the provision comes from Him, and that He has given us in His Word and in His Son the way to flourish. So we don't adopt other ideologies. We don't adopt other forms of flourishing. We don't adopt these other avenues that are purporting to to help, but rather all they do is hinder. We don't adopt ideologies that allow us to keep our fellow neighbors in sin. We don't adopt ideologies that whitewash sin and act as if people are okay. No, we we adopt the truthfulness of God's Word that reminds us that we proclaim this way of flourishing in grace and truth. We don't adopt these other ideologies because all they do is send people straight to hell. But what do we do? We point people to Jesus and Him crucified. That it's on that hill and on that cross that Christ secures salvation to any and all who would call on His name. You want to see what flourishing looks like? It looks like following in obedience to Jesus. Now, friends, a quick note before I wrap up. That's not to say that flourishing looks the way that we want it to look. We might have started 2023 with goals, perhaps with words that we want to mark this year by. Friends, when we talk about flourishing, we're talking about flourishing by God's definition. You want to tell the Apostle Paul, brother, you're going to flourish. It's going to be great as he's getting bit in the wrist by a viper, being stoned before the Sanhedrin to the point of death? You want to tell the other apostles who all were crucified or martyred, your life's fine, you're going to flourish, brother. Tell that to those in the first and fifth centuries who were put at the stake and burned alive. That's not my definition of flourishing. The definition of flourishing is obeying God by trusting His Son and that He will provide for you everything you need. And ultimately, we recognize that we are just sojourners, just pilgrims that were created in the beginning to walk in perfect union with him forever and it's because of sin that that can't happen but because of christ who he is and what he's done he provides an eternal flourishing to where our earthly possessions seem like nothing May we serve Him. May we serve Him as those who say, You have saved our lives.
Because, beloved, if you have trusted in Jesus, let me remind you, he has saved your life. And friend, if you're here and you've yet to trust in Christ, trying to make it on your own, thinking that the world's definition of flourishing is flourishing for your own life, let me call you to trust in Jesus. For all of those things will be left by the wayside. For the things of Christ will be forever. Trust in Him. Walk with Christ. For that is the only way for you and I to truly flourish.